welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Well, welcome back. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I am joined as usual by Dr. Joe Boot, and I am joined with our special guest, uh, Graham Leach. Graham is Fellow for Biblical Economics here at the Ezra Institute. Uh, He is one of Britain's leading economists. Uh, Graham is CEO and Chief Economist of the organization Macronomics, former Chief Economist and Director of Policy at the Institute of Directors, uh, where he represented in economic discussions uh, with the Chancellor, as well as at uh, 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister's residence in England. Graham's visiting professor of economic policy and a senior fellow of the Legatum Institute in London, a member of the IEA Shadow Monetary Policy Committee, and a life fellow of the Institute of Directors. Graham also teaches uh, graduate students in macroeconomics at Cardiff University Business School. Today's podcast, by the way, is about economics. I'm not sure if you gathered that. That's, uh, that's why we got you here, Graham. Um, <laughs> specifically, uh, we have begun a new uh, short summer series on challenges facing the church. Last week, uh, we had uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin on speaking about Christian pessimism uh, and the direction of God, uh, God's work in history. Today, our theme is Christian socialism. And we've asked Graham to come on here, uh, explain why why we are seeing uh, the emergence and growth of uh, of such a term or such a movement, and how we got to this place, and what a biblical God honoring response uh, to such a phenomenon is. So, Graham, it's a uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Oh, oh! Before we begin, I should uh, should let you know that we are just a uh, a short few days away from the uh, the Worldview Leadership Academy that's coming up in Port Colborne, Ontario, starting July twenty third. Looking forward to welcoming about fifty high school age students. We'll be talking about a Christian worldview, uh, an understanding of the covenant, of uh, questions related to uh, food and drink and sexuality, all of the real uh, major issues that are that you're going to need to contend with and deal with from the, ba- the foundation of a Christian worldview. We're looking forward to, uh, to having Joe and uh, several of our fellows there to, uh, to lecture on, uh, on these subjects. We're looking forward to a great week together. Our, uh, our new Canadian director, Nate Wright, uh, is going to be there as well. He's beginning his, uh, his tenure with us starting, uh, the end of this week, so we'll be uh, we'll be looking forward to to seeing him there and uh, having him uh, spend some time together with uh, with all of us and all of our students. So that's uh, that's a couple of uh, that's an upcoming event. We've got Mission of God conferences coming up in Canada, two of them: one in uh, Windsor, Ontario; the other in Calgary, Alberta. That's happening uh, this fall and winter. And again, details will be available on our website, ezrainstitute.com. Stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll have more information uh, announced here on the show, as well as out on social media and on the web as it, uh, as it gets finalized and concretized. So without, uh, without further ado, uh, Joe, I'd like to turn it over to you to get, to get started on some, uh, some questions for Graham about... Uh, where are we and how did we get here? Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Um, <clears throat> before I launch headlong into those uh, uh, questions with Graham, um, it might be uh, encouraging or at least interesting for our, for our listeners as well to hear about the forthcoming book that we're publishing w- uh, of Graham's, which uh, we're hoping will be uh, around about the end of this year. R- Ryan, can you tell us something about that that's too? Because right. that's uh, something that we're really looking forward to. That's right. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a critical area that uh, that needs a a godly and consistent Christian treatment. And uh, up until up until now, we have we have not had the 
subject specialized expertise to to deal with this issue of economics. Graham Leach is writing a book that uh, Ezra Institute, Ezra Press will be releasing uh, towards the end of this year or early next on God and economics and a, a consistent God-honoring way to think about economics. I'll, in the course of our conversation, Graham is probably the best person to, uh, to tell us about what that book will, uh, will ultimately look like and who it will be for. It's, uh, it's not for, uh, experts. It's not, uh, it's not inside baseball. This is for economics is really the, uh, the study of human action. And this is, this will be a book for all thoughtful thinking Christians. I feel confident saying at least that much. Otherwise awesome. you're going to have to find somebody else to publish it, Graham. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, well, we're certainly uh, we're certainly looking forward. To that. I I will leave it there, uh, and Graham. If you've got uh, you've got more details to say about uh, what you're what you're working on with that, what what readers sh- should expect, uh, you're you're most welcome to uh, to share on that as well. Well, maybe we'll come back to that towards the end. We can just kind of uh, deal with that. I'll I'll let Thanks. Joe. Um, decide the moment for that well thank you ryan and uh, graham thanks again for for being with us today and uh it's we've we've had you speak at one or two conferences for the institute um and uh you're going to be joining us again actually in the uk for our mission of god conference this year which we're looking forward to and this mm-hmm. is an area graham that is frequently overlooked and often not thought about with any seriousness by Christians, we tend to accept the status quo. And uh, rarely do we think that there is a distinctively Christian way to think about economics. Of course, this is true of other areas of life. But this is a tragically, in my view, neglected area because of the far-reaching social, political, familial uh, and ecclesiastical implications of a faulty view of economic life. Just look at Karl Marx, uh, whose whole vision of hermeneutic for history was centered around uh, economics. And uh, we'll touch on this shortly, but the whole idea basically of the abolition of the family, of private property, of um, hierarchy. So Graham, let's start Let's start here as we think about this um, notion of Christian socialism. And I think it probably is fair to say that although many Christians fall into this category, they probably haven't thought it through to recognize that actually they hold an essentially socialist uh, position. Um, Ayn Rand, the, uh, or Ayn Rand, the, uh, the uh, American philosopher, uh, actually said that Communism to proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote. It is merely the difference between murder and suicide. Um, she, she, she argued that communism and socialism are aiming at the same thing. They just have a slightly different way of going about it. Um, I'll leave you to, to comment on how fair that is. Um, but why don't you just help us, Graham, to kick this off? What is socialism? What what and and how does it sort of express itself in popular culture today, even amongst people who perhaps wouldn't have thought of themselves as socialists? Well, I mean, it, it is. Thank you for having me on the show, guys. Um, it's great to be here. Um, these are some big questions, so we'll only skirt the surface, I think, on on much of it. But at the end of the day, nowadays. Um, Look at the world beyond the church. You know, left and right is socialist. You know, Sunak in the in the UK. Um, even this the scale of spending by Republicans, let's say in 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 the US. You've got left and right of the political spectrum spending money, looking to government for the solution. And so, if we restrict this back to basics, it you know. It almost goes back to the Garden Eden, doesn't it? Where we went from a state of in- innocence to a state of independence. It's where mankind thinks that they know better than, better than God. And if you have a rise in atheism and a decline in trust in God, then you've got to, there's a vacuum there and it's going to get filled by something and it gets filled, the spirit of the age, 
for the past century, really, but it's intensified. It, it feels as though it's gone parabolic and, and exponential in, in, in recent decades. The shift has been that we look to God for everything. Uh, sorry, we look to government for everything. We don't look to God. That is understandable in a world of secularization and unbelief. And so that, that decline in belief is foundational. But at the same time, and the reason the church has made a mistake, in my view, is that Christians have just done the lazy thing. They thought Jesus is all about love. It's all about this lovey-dovey stuff. And therefore, that means that we might, you know, big government is more compassionate. Therefore, they don't think through what the actual consequences of that belief are. They have this very soft, lovey-dovey, fluffy feeling, which makes them feel better. But actually, here's the rub, guys. You're absolutely headlong up against the Bible when you take that route, because the Bible doesn't go down that road at all. Look at the admonitions in the Old Testament about Israel taking a king. They're, all, they're full of the warnings of what would happen. And the warnings of what would happen are what we've experienced in the last hundred years. Yeah, It's coercive. It's not free. And God deals with us all as an individual. We are individually accountable. He loves us passionately individually. He doesn't, yes, he loves his children. He loves the world. But it's an individual thing. It's not a collective thing. This whole idea that collectively we can solve all our problems. It doesn't work like that. We solve it individually. And if we're going to love our neighbour in this way, when Christians think we, we've got to love our neighbour, which is absolutely correct, absolutely, we all know that. It, but then they've got to say this, okay, do I take the Good Samaritan route here or do I pass by on the other side? To go down the socialist route is to pass by the other side. It's to pass the responsibility to somebody else. It's to vote for something else, it's actually to vote. It's actually to vo to vote for somebody else to pay for it, and not you to pay for it. Because inevitably, in a fallen world, it's it's the rich which get drawn upon to pay for this. Um, and so, basically, uh, we go down a completely different path to what God intended. And I just keep it. I'm trying to open it up in with very simple themes, actually. And I think the two most powerful themes are. If you're if you're arguing for socialism, you've got to come against "Thou shalt not steal" and "Thou shalt not covet," mm -hmm. because we're to be contented. So, coveting for more is something which is encouraged by a status system. And yes, the Bible gives a limited remit for taxation for God ordained purposes for the state. But as far as I can see, and I do, I demand anybody to prove otherwise. It shows that anything else is left. Yeah. And so when you force theft on people, when you encourage covetousness, these are economic systems which are at odds with God and, and what God teaches in the Bible. And those are some very simple principles which challenge Christians from the outset to say, hang on a minute. Um, one, the reason that all the media and the, the world at large supports these ideas is because they don't believe in God. And Two, if we just have this fluffy view that big government is compassionate, then we may be making an error here. These are the initial footsteps, as it were, to, to try and persuade the church that they've got it wrong. And I believe the church has got it wrong in a, in a fundamental way. And it moves on as well, because... From what I'm teaching, for a start, it means that there isn't a fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, taxation, public spending virtually doesn't exist in God's economy. But moreover, it's a lot broader than that as well. Monetary policy doesn't exist as well. Um, and um, the idea that government should print money in the greatest creatio ex nihilo since the opening pages of Genesis um, is it, just an abomination. Um, because actually it's theft. It dilutes the money. It's counterfeiting. You and I would go to prison for it. It's counterfeiting and it's theft because it dilutes the money supply, it creates inflation, and it steals the savings of other people. It's hidden, so it's not obvious. And unless you really think about it, you won't get there. But when you start thinking about these things just a little bit, just a little bit, you suddenly realise that monetary policy, fiscal policy, run headlong in opposition to the Bible. Yeah. So, Graham, um, 
I do want to come to that because I think you're anticipating where we're going with this uh, in terms of God's economic model and where we've gotten to culturally. Uh, I think for, for, for many listeners, things like quantitative easing and fiscal policy, some of that will need a little bit of unpacking. But it seems to me that in terms of yeah. the, the, the fundamental question that we've we've posed there about socialism i mean remember i think it was margaret thatcher who famously said the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money um and you've in a a number of different ways what you've alluded to there is i mean Karl marx saw socialism as a transitional phase on the way to full-blown communism but what you've alluded to there is that socialism you know fundamentally uh is about eroding, steadily eroding, actually, um, the reality of private property through theft uh, and the, 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 the interference or the perpetual involvement and intervention of the state in essentially managing or seeking to manage as though it's God that incredible thing uh, called the economy. And the and the ways in which socialism seeks to do this that you've mentioned, I scribbled them down while you were talking, um, is uh, interventionism, which we are incredibly accustomed to, um, redistribution, because the taxation system that you've talked about is progressive, and confiscation, because it's also inherently confiscatory in order that those resources can essentially be owned by the state, which is the classic Marxist ideal that not just that actually the eventually for Marx, it was the whole means of production would be owned by the state. Nationalization is one thing. We've seen plenty of that. Um, but this whole idea of tinkering, of, of monkeying around with, of seeking socialism seeks to control and manage uh, the economy so that it can create what it feels is a fair or just society. And what you're saying is that ends up in injustice. Now, before we get into God's economic model, can you just say something about why is it that some Christians seem to be attracted to this, though? I mean, you've painted a pretty bleak picture in the first five minutes of um, there of, of what this really means. But why would Christians be attracted to this sort of socialistic, state interventionist, collectivist model? Uh, I think I think it is purely and simply uh, 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 the error of thinking that big government is compassionate because big government is seen to equal a big welfare state. And because a better welfare state helps the needy, or it's seen to help the needy, then it is it is seen as as love so big government equals big welfare equals big love yeah and and it's not like that it's not like that in principle for a number of the reasons we've just set out and for the reasons you just described as well um in practice it doesn't work i mean if if it's god's system then god will bless it and every state's the, the bigger the state gets the less he blesses the economy, so there's that. That's if that's God shaking you and slapping you across the face and saying, "Guys, uh, watch out here! I'm warning you. Um, you're going down a dangerous road." And it is this belief that it is compassionate and therefore loving, and therefore it reflects the character of Jesus, and therefore it reflects what we should be doing. That is what it doesn't. It's it's an unthinking love. It's 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 just assuming that that's good. It's childlike almost. The church is being childlike. It's not being mature and thinking through the consequences of its actions. Um, and why has that persisted? Because I think the old joke about you know don't talk about religion and politics. Well, the church doesn't like to talk about politics. Unless you're the Archbishop uh, of Canterbury, who seems to like talking yes. about it on all the wrong yeah. side all of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair, fair point. And those who grab the mic are not, are not in my view, always um, um, taking a biblical line on these matters because um, the, the Bible is clear that it's a minimal role of government. And um, it, it's so blatant and so clear and it comes across 
so clearly that one wonders why you have to ask the question, <laughs> which you do. And uh, my only explanation, and it's probably a feeble one, to be honest, Joe, um, is that I think people are just lazy and they just think it's compassionate, therefore it's good. Um, and I think it also goes back to a misrepresentation. I think the, the church has been deluded by the world here as well, because there is an assumption that before the state grew, then it was a harsh, cruel mm, evolutionary survival of the fittest out there um and and that's what ended up with the 1930s economy now this is and the depression um well you know again like so many things in the world this is a gross misrepresentation of the truth um uh, in my book I, I point out the contrast between the 1930s and the 1920s in the early 1920s in the wake of the, the First World War and the Spanish flu pandemic, the, the US economy um, went into a deep spot, downward spiral. Um, but the government didn't intervene. Back then, the central bank didn't, didn't intervene then either. It was only a few years old and it was lacking in confidence. And so basically, market forces were left to work. God's price system was left to work. It's a miraculous price system. When do people want to think about the economy? They just need to think about the, how we don't have queues, why we don't have surpluses or shortages day in, day out in all the goods um, uh, we face. We don't because the price system is allowed to work and it's a miracle. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But the price system was allowed to work in the early 1920s. Within two years, massive unemployment had returned to normal levels. Output had been recovered. And the bad debt situation had been um, worked its way out and the economy was fit to roar for the 1920s. Fast forward 10 years and the, the, the downturn then, which was actually as a result of excess central banking activity by then. But what happened then? Governments intervened. They didn't allow God's price system to work. Prices didn't fall. Markets couldn't clear. And we ended up with mass unemployment. But the picture of the time, and I think it's partly due to the, the invention of television at that time and cinema and the fact that you had images day in, day out of unemployment queues, which resonated in people's minds with capitalism. And so they blend the market and they believe government was good and therefore more government must be even better. Mm -hmm. And that, so I think there's a bit of a legacy factor here from the misrepresentation of the facts. Mm -hmm. um, but that still goes on. You know, every economics history students at university will still power the 1930s. It was due, you know, due to the failure of capitalism argument. They have, they have no knowledge of the facts of what happens in the early 1920s. No. Um, and, um, and that is one of the contrasts. It, wherever you look, um, in God's system, actually, inflation is bad. Deflation is good. Deflation comes because we're more productive. We do better things. We do things more efficiently. Um, and so we, we were actually able to reduce prices. Things, you know, we saw that in, in electronic goods over the last 20 years. They cut all televisions. They're initially expensive, but we get to make them better. Economies of scale, boom, boom, boom. And things become cheaper. That's God's blessing. That's actually saying if you he rewards efficiency, it also encourages us to save. And all these things um, are threatened by the growth of government because now in the Keynesian, the Keynes, the most famous English economist, probably the most famous economist of the 20th century without any doubt, he a fundamentally immoral man. Um, he would be locked up as a paedophile now. And, uh, and I don't believe in cancelling people, but I do believe she should cancel Keynes mm -hmm. because of his behaviour there. Um, um, but nobody talks about it. Um, but his antagonism, he mocked Christianity in the Trinity. His antagonism um, towards Kings Christian um, was so great that one wonders whether it motivated some of his economic views. Of course. And his most famous economic view were, really was his paradox of thrift, where he basically said that while saving might be an individual virtue, it was a collective vice because if everybody saves at the same time, then you wouldn't have any consumer spending, therefore the economy would crash. Um, I haven't got the time to go into why this is all wrong, um, but it sounds good on paper, but when it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and it most definitely is. And he was opposed to saving, and yet the Bible 
teaches that hard work, thrift, putting money aside, investing for the future is the way to run an economy. And yet he attacked it full on and he attacked saving. Um, and by attacking saving, he was also really saying, don't save for a rainy day, trust in the state, it'll come to rescue you. Well, it won't. Um, but um, we've got away with it, but yeah. um, we, uh, this won't be forever. And my book shows you most definitely why the greatest economic crash in history is just around the corner. Well, let's um, let's come to that in just a moment because um, uh, we'll get the big, the broad brushstrokes of that. It's interesting the way you started that by talking about Christians thinking of that they are being loving uh, by by adopting this model. Because um, again, my mind goes to Marx. I'm writing something at the moment on on Marx, and um, the the Marxists really actually thought that they thought and they spoke in terms of love. That actually the problem with our current economic system, our current social system that's that's bound to it is that it's based on, in the idea of a juridical community where justice is important. Um, and and you, you mentioned not stealing and not coveting and these fundamental laws of God. Well, that's all to do with justice. But in the truly socialist society, you don't need justice. It's love because everything will have been uh, equalized and distributed. And you've got this utopian sort of delusional view um, of, uh, of humanity. And it leads to these delusional economic theories that you've talked about that have proved themselves to be uh, unworkable failures. And um, you talked about First World War and the Depression era. And Graham, uh, you know better than anyone, I think you talk about it in your book, that there has been an explosion of the welfare state, the sheer size of the state running in Britain that I think 47% of GDP now is basically government spending. So we've gone you know, in from World War One, World War Two, the explosion of government dependency, and now, uh, and we'll come to this. I think at the end, we're on the, we're on the brink of the collapse of the welfare states of of Europe, um, as the state basically this this social democracy, this sort of soft socialism, has got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and where we're, and of course, now people are struggling in, in all kinds of ways uh, in the wake of the COVID debacle. But why don't you just paint a picture for us quickly then? You've talked about the problems, uh, some of the issues with this socialistic model. Um, tell us this, you know, the statist interventionist model. Tell us, uh, give us the broad brushstrokes then of really what your book is about. Um, and the whole idea of God's price system, of God's economic model. What does that, um, give us an insight into what that actually looks like. What is God's economic model over against this socialistic state interventionist view? It's very simple. Uh, and you, you most definitely, and to reassure Ryan from his comments at the beginning, you most definitely don't need um, advanced mathematics and grad level school uh, uh, mathematics to understand it. it. It revolves around the miracle of his price system. So, uh, you know, the reason we go and buy shirts, food, toothpaste, cars, books, clothes, whatever it is, and, you know, there's not a queue. Um, it's because of the miracle of the price system. And the reason there's not a shortage is because of the miracle of the price system. Prices adjust. All these buyers and sellers, all the people who put the parts together for an automobile, all those things are put together as a result of the price system. And how do the, these companies get the capital to invest in the first place? That is because of the miracle of the price system, because interest rates are just saving and investment flows, and that results in the provision of capital and the, ultimately the provision of goods and services we see. So when it, the Bible says that God says it's he that gives us the ability to produce wealth, well, yes, he does um, in our abilities and in our giftings, but he most of all gives it us in the, the gift is his gift of the price system. And it is a miraculous thing. We take it for granted. We never think about it. Economists don't think about it either. Um, we only really think about it when it doesn't work. So um, when, it, when, when it doesn't work is when um, mankind intervenes. So uh, what happens then? So it, it, it introduces um, 
planning laws and zone laws, as they call it, called it in the States, um, which limit the supply of land. So that raises the price of properties so people can't afford them. The proper houses are more expensive than they otherwise would be. And, the, in, it, and when you restrict the price uh, then restrict the supply, then you're, you're going to have consequences. If you raise the minimum, if you impl- uh, introduce minimum wage laws, which raise the wage above what you might call the free market price level, then that means that you'll get more supply of workers than there is demand for them because um, people there will be more supplied at the higher price, but there won't be the demand for them. So when we stop, these are just two simple examples. When you mess with God's price system, there are consequences. And in the last 20 years, we've most definitely messed with the biggest price of all, which is interest rates. And that has caused massive problems because we've reduced interest rates to artificially low levels. And um, when you have interest rates at low levels, people do silly things. When you have them at zero, they do insane things. And we'll pay the price for that. For that. Um, and so God's price system is key to it. You let its price system work. I talked before about how prices worked out the 1920s economic downturn, but they weren't allowed to work out the 1930s economic downturn. That's a vivid example of the consequences. Um, it was said that the USSR failed because prices weren't allowed to tell the truth um, and i can remember going to kiev in 1989 to moscow i persuaded my boss that the um, communism was going to collapse i was about four months into my first job and he thought i'd gone mad but i managed to persuade him i said Com- nobody's talking about it. it's going to collapse but none of our clients will believe me unless i actually have on the ground knowledge so i went there and i came back and i came back with one story which always persuaded people I went out to a meal one night and a guy came in the room and the friends there said to me, uh, the lecturer said, ah, KGB colonel. So I kind of smiled at him. After he had a few vodkas, he looked at me and he raised his glass and he said to the Soviet Union, the worst run economy on earth. (laughs) The KGB knew what the truth was, what the facts were. They knew it was the worst run economy on earth. Um, And that's because it didn't allow prices to tell the truth. And when you don't allow prices to tell the truth, the economy doesn't work properly. In a fallen world, it will never work perfectly. Of course it won't. But if you allow prices to tell the truth, if you allow God's system to work, then the system will work massively better. And part of that as well, and part of it locked in with uh, what I was talking about before with regard to fiscal policy, which is government spending and taxation, is really... There's what I call in the Old Testament the economic trinity. The economic trinity is basically the the sheer strength of property rights and the emphasis on them. The voluntary system of welfare, not a coercive uh, government-led welfare system, doesn't mean it's minimal. It puts a massive onus of responsibility on the individual there. If the government steps back, boy, have we got to step forward. But, of course, if the government's doing all the stepping forward, that reduces a massive opportunity for the church to witness for Jesus. And, and I think the devil has smiled, he's grinned, he's pumped, he's high-fived the growth of the, the welfare state in the 20th century and in the mm. 21st century because it's removed the opportunity for the church to show the love of Christ. And the third factor in the economic trinity is the Bible clearly suggests a proportional, minimal proportional system of taxation and not a progressive system Mm -hmm. of taxation all three of those things are like a triple lock on the growth of the power of the state they are a triple lock if you throw in what i said before about the emphasis on saving about the emphasis on god hating false weights and measures and counterfeiting and, and debasement of the currency therefore that locks out monetary policy as well it is it, I'm incredulous that there are Christian economists who still argue for a big state because the facts are just sitting there. Uh, a GCSE, basic economics 101 class, can understand God's economy if you apply those principles and you don't need anything else because all those principles are better than all the economic papers in the world. Graham, give us give us those give us those three principles again. You've talked about um, 
the 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 miracle of the price system and part of that you've just mentioned just weights and measures as a fundamental biblical principle and so part of that is that scarcity fixes price which was what uh, these um the, these socialist and marxist economies in the soviet union refuses refuse to allow to work through the system but give people those three pillars again because i think those are so important that that triangle of the of the biblical system because that really does does um uh, bring the uh, bring the thing down to the to, to earth for people mm-hmm. okay well it's a miracle of the price system it's the economic trinity of the strength of property rights of a of a proportional tax system and a low proportional tax system and you know a, a, a tithe is, is, is a lower figure um and uh, it's uh, voluntary welfare. So voluntary welfare, proportion, low proportionate tax system and property rights, the miracle of the price system and God, and God hating false weights, weights and measures and the debasement of the currency. And that le- so the, the, the Trinity rules out a fiscal policy, the false weights and measures and debasement of the currency rules out a monetary policy and you're left with God's miracle of the price system on top and that's the way to run your economy. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, drill down just a little bit into to, to help people understand why who may be less familiar with this economic field. Um, t- two things I want to just zone in on a bit there in terms of how this would be uh, our current direction is a violation of God's law word and God's economic system. First, let's just talk briefly about property rights. Obviously, one of the things that is so easily overlooked, which it, 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 you've used the word incredulous, it is incredible that Christians don't think about these two fundamentals of the law of God, two of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall not steal and you shall not covet. And much of today's monetary policy and fiscal policy is built around theft and covetousness. Um, and yes. which are fundamentally in violation of God's law. Now, explain to people why the property rights you shall not steal are so important. Why does the secure ownership of property produce economic prosperity? Why is it that when you've got the rule of God's law word that protects property, uh, from covetousness and specifically from theft. Why does that produce economic prosperity? Isn't that just about selfish, rich people hanging on to as much land as they can? Um, where's the fairness in that? H- how is that? H- how is the protection of property rights so good for the economy? Explain that to people. Um, because when you... <laughs> there are different ways I can... Explain that in different ways, but the best way of understanding is what happens when you take them away. Um, and um, so the first argument is it, it because um, if you take it away, it's what I call the public versus the private toilet argument. Um, if you look at a public toilet that nobody's responsible for it, um, then um, people don't don't look after it, and it's a mess. People look after their homes and their gardens a lot more than they look after public. Look, look. I, I mentioned before about when I went to the Soviet Union, you only have to walk. I I only had to, in the first five minutes, I had all the photographs I needed to prove that the Marxism didn't work. Um, so there's the tragedy of the commons there, that it just doesn't happen. Um, that what needs to happen doesn't... You In a fallen world, you need the incentives of property rights. So there is an individualist element there, without doubt. But yourself interested behavior is not the same as your selfish behavior i don't jump jumping it's in my self-interest not to run across the road in front of a fast car that's not selfish behavior that's self-interested behavior if i'm looking after my family and i want to grow my business if i want to serve my customer um and that's the essence of capitalism and property rights is that actually you're putting your own capital at risk to serve the needs of others ultimately. And if you don't serve the needs of others ultimately, they'll ditch you and go somewhere else. And you get a reward for that. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's a sacrifice of your savings. It's a sacrifice of your time. And God wants to honour that. And he honours that in your own property rights. And if you do well and you work hard at that and you succeed, you'll be honoured. 
Property rights are fundamental, though, from a philosophical angle. Um, and, and that is be- because if you don't have that property right, then you have a serious issue of who does have that property right and what they do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so property rights is all about the protection of the individual at the end of the day as well. It's God's protection for the individual, knowing that in a fallen world, um, how vulnerable the individual is. But he loves the individual. And, and yes, of course, property rights can be taken too far into selfishness. And, and yes, you know, economic people's, even man's, I do apologize. That, that's my dog making a, an important point there. Um, but, um, oh, he's questioning me on it. But, um, what's happened? What's, um, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, so you need, you need property rights for philosophical reasons. You need them for economic reasons, but overwhelmingly, you need them because of the paramounts of the importance of the individual. The individual acting responsibly and exercising his property rights is not that I then encroach on the property rights of another individual. I respect their property rights yeah. as well, and so that is why property rights is so important because it emphasises individual responsibility. Mm. Um, but if you take all that individual responsibility away and you put property rights in the hands of the collective, in the hands of the state, then all that is lost. Yeah, and then who's and going so to? And who on earth is going to invest in, I mean, wherever you see property rights as being insecure, you drive away investment. So if there's a country that's... It's, it's, absolutely, Joe, you're right. The, the, the incentives are removed completely. But it's worse than that. It's, it's worse than that. I mean, this is, this is what von Mies and the Austrian school identified, you know, a century ago now. It's what they call the economic calculation problem, which is that a state planner... Um, doesn't have the information to know where to allocate. Even if they had, perf- even if they had this brilliant system where they could say, "Oh, um, you know, we 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 raised all the money. We just need to know where to put it." Mm-hmm. Okay, so they we we don't we haven't we don't worry about the incentive. We've raised the money, so we got the money. We just need to know where to put it. They don't know where to put the money. The state planner doesn't, does he put it in aircraft production? Does he put it in motor car production? Does he put it in garden chair production? They have no means of knowing yeah. without a price system. So with, so if they suppress God's price system, then again, they are, they, they're lost. Yeah. And, and so this is why property rights and leads to a price system because people have a vested interest. The guy who owns the lumber, which gets bought and sold to produce houses or whatever is incentivized by the price system the price system is based on property rights yeah so um we'll we'll do two more two two more questions here i wanted to pick up on the second part of that which is obviously related to taxation because taxation is what uh progressive taxation now provides the wealth welfare and the massive growth of the welfare state, and often this is where people are deceived into thinking that this is the loving thing um, that we yeah. that we take from other people, uh, the provident, the hardworking, the savers, and we redistribute that uh, to to others. Um, <clears throat> first, you made a distinction between uh, progressive taxation and proportional taxation, which is the biblical model. The biblical model is proportionate taxation not progressive taxation i sometimes give an illustration of this graham with people a very simple one i say you know if we were in a, in a meeting somewhere we're having a conference day we're listening to graham give a lecture on economics and there's 50 of us in the room and it's lunchtime and one or two of us who uh, are not so well paid notice that one of the more highly paid individuals who's at the conference has left their wallet lying around and in their wallet there are as a ser- there is a serious wad of 100 pound notes or 50 pound notes and uh, because in our relative need and of course mark said you know from each according to his ability to each according to each according to his need if we if we um employed that principle then we would say well you know this person stepped out for a minute for lunch and we raided their wallet and distributed it amongst those those of us who are less well paid and if I asked the room, um, if I asked the room on that day, you know, the, those people who took that money, what are they? They would say they were thieves, that they had stolen, that that was theft. 
But if the government does it, Graham, if the government uh, as a civil authority does the very same thing, that's called justice. Now, um, (laughs) but it's not biblical justice. So this link between, you know, the, the... taxation and welfare, and then God's model of welfare, which is voluntary generosity. This seems to me to be a a spot where the church has missed this massively. We've justified state-sanctioned theft, and we've overlooked, not so much in America, I have to say, um, but especially in Europe and in Canada, we've overlooked uh, the the model that God gives to us in scripture, which is the tithe, uh, which is the role that the church has in diaconal care, as well as the family, because in the end, property is individual, yes, but it's also family property. It's something we have uh, as fathers, yeah. as, as as parents. We have an obligation to provide for our children. Paul, the apostle says, if a man doesn't provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Uh, and and we rarely hear sermons on that. So um, this is the penultimate question. So uh, well, there will be one more after this. So keep it tight. But just just comment a little bit more on 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 this whole issue here. That God's God's tithe is proportional, not progressive, and it's there for the provision of health and welfare and these things. And yet we seem to have climbed down from from that. So. Tell us a little bit more about the role then of the 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 family, the individual, and the church in the context of God's economic model. I think for the first point, uh, I agreed with all you said. Uh, I think the first point is that Christians have made a mistake that that you know they they think to obey the government means that they you know got to obey agree with everything that comes their way, as it were. Now, you know, yes, we do have to obey the law. But, you know, there was a higher law as well. Now, there were consequences of obeying the higher law and not obeying, obeying the lower earthly law. And that is, if you, you know, if you challenge the government, you may end up in prison. Um, but Christians just don't challenge at all. Um, and, and they don't even challenge in the public square anymore uh, about this, so, you know, because wh- where, is, where is the Ezra Institute across writ large across across western europe and north america in terms of making the case for the smaller state and the, the these are these arguments so we don't we don't make it in the public we don't even try to do it verbally let alone forcibly in terms of you know challenging the government on 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 that basis so there's a kind of old just lay back and sit back and take it um one of the consequences, though, of, of going down this road and not challenging the progressive nature of the system is that God, I, I mentioned before, the, the miracle of God's price system. Well, it also, also has it inbuilt blessings and curses. If you do the right things, you get blessings. If people save more, then that increases the flow of savings, that lowers the interest rate, that means that you can invest more. Um, now the government frauds that by printing money from nothing, uh, and that creates unforeseen consequences. But that's a so you get curses then. But there are blessings and curses in God's system. Um, and the, similarly, you know, if you go down the excess taxation route, if you go down the progressive route, then you will destroy economic incentives. You will destroy the incentive to work, save, and invest, and that will lower the growth rate of the economy. That will lower the size of the economy. And ultimately, that means that the state has fewer resources than it otherwise would have unless it keeps on ratcheting up the, the amount of money it's taking as a proportion of GDP. One of the reasons it keeps growing is because it's so inefficient, it needs to keep growing you know, because it needs to steal more and more money yeah. um, because it's got this crack habit which it can't give up. Um, and uh, that is... That is the reality of big government. Eventually, you reach the point where it's taking so much and it's borrowing so much. So you have these negative consequences on growth from high rates of progressive taxation. But at the same time, you get the more and more debt the state accumulates beyond a certain threshold. At lower levels, you can get away with it. But at higher and higher levels, it begins to thump the growth rate as well. 
So you've got negative tax effects on growth, you've got negative public debt effects on growth, and you end up with a situation where you've got hardly any growth. Yeah. And that is the consequence. So you pl- mess around with God's model on the tax front, on the state front, on the price system, with regard to monetary policy as well. It's what it's it's quite as- astonishing. If you look at the UK economy, and it's the same across the advanced economies, post the financial crisis in 2008, if you look at trend productivity growth was kind of edging upwards, progressively um, doing quite well. We were just starting a technological revolution. You'd expect it to be trending upwards. And then, boom, financial crisis. So the trend would have carried on going that way. What's productivity done since then? It's flatlined. And all these explanations people look to, you know, we do, we're not redistributing money enough. You know, all the statist excuses under the sun can be, we need to spend more money on public education. You know, take God out the classroom, take parents out the classroom, give it free of charge and expect, oh, everything will be fine. Well, of course, we know it won't be fine. But all these things, the, the state, there's a statist explanation when the simplest and most obvious explanation for why productivity growth, which is the number one driver of prosperity in the long term, is because we've increased the size of the state and we've had easy money. And easy money has so distorted the economic system, it's led to what we call malinvestments and bad investments. And you can see that across the board, money is poured into real estate, you know. The money has poured into equities. Now, if productivity growth has flatlined and equities have gone that way, and product, then there's something going. There's something wrong in the system somewhere. Because if if our if our efficiency hasn't increased, but our profitability is said to be going through the roof because equities are going through the roof, then that tells you something's deeply wrong in the system. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and and what it means is that the um the chickens will come home to roost. Yeah. Um and so I, I don't want to kind of finish with your guys um too bleak, but I do want to warn them um that if you apply God's biblical economic principles to the economy, then you know something big is coming around the corner because there's a judgment coming on it because it is not applying God's economic rules. And God says, you know, I'll give you the, the, the tools of wealth creation. But if you break my rules and if you're disobedient I'm so patient and loving. I will. I will hold back for a long time, but eventually this will work itself out, and it's about to work itself out. What do we do? We turn back to him. We repent. We turn back to him, and then this hand of judgment goes away. Um, and so, or, so I can express this in theological terms, and I can, but I can give you the economic data to back it up as well. There's something big coming around the corner, guys, and um, you need to be aware of it. Okay, well let's 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 wrap it up with that issue then with a with a, with this last couple of minutes here. Um, you've you've talked about the and of course when the economy doesn't grow and we get God's curse uh, because we've got unsound money uh, and there's these malinvestments. It's always the poor. It's always the most disadvantaged that suffer the most. And this is often neglected because unemployment goes up. The availability of good paying jobs starts to disappear. And so this notion that this is only about people living at the top of the tree. No, this is about everyone. This is about everybody's ability to have access to a viable and growing economy, to have access to employment. Um, to have access to a potential a, a job that has a future requires that God's economic model is followed, and where there are immediate needs of poverty and short short term needs, then God has His method of dealing with that too. Vo- the voluntary charitable sector, the church, the family, which is the biggest uh, a welfare institution that God ever created, the, the Christian family. So those are those are absolutely vital issues. And you've touched on this this last one, um, the, the the problem we've had, Graham, for some time, as you said, with cheap money, free money, and again for the uninitiated, when you talk about things like quantitative easing and so on, that basically means that the government is creating or the bank is creating uh, fiat currency. It's basically digitally just out of thin air creating money that isn't backed by anything. It just adds masses of uh, 
so-called stimulus to the economy, um, and it's all debt, and this is supposedly going to be paid off by future taxes that are unrealizable, of course, in a uh, in an economy that isn't even growing or, or is in deep trouble already. And so we've got this tsunami right now. We've got in the West, we've got uh, runaway inflation now. Uh, we've got interest rates going up and up and up because that, that's the only way or as part of the way that you to, to restrain um, inflation. You've got the cost of living crisis then, and you've got this massive, seemingly unpayable debt. Now, it seems to me, Graham, you can only kick the can down the road for so long. You've given us a bit of a harbinger there. You've also encouraged, encouraged us to have faith, to trust the Lord, and to be obedient. But just very quickly, what is your prediction for where things are headed economically in the next few years in the West? And give us uh, a couple of thoughts for how we, as Christians, um, seek to obey God in the midst of that and do our best to insulate ourselves from the challenges that come when we disobey God's economic model. I think we start apply God's economic model, which is safer for any day as well, um, because I think one needs to be cautious. One needs to reduce their debt exposure. The uncertainty here, though, and I agree with you that you can only kick the can down the road so far, the uncertainty is that the governments could yet can keep the can down the road even further. But in doing so, they will create an even greater inflation problem further down the road. So the timing of this is difficult, to be absolutely sure. But the day of reckoning begins normally with these things. Every easy money in history, easy money is when we have you know, near zero interest rates since the financial crisis. Um, and that you get your comeuppance when eventually that leads to inflation and interest rate rise is on the level that we've seen over the last 18 months or so um, in, in the US, in the UK um, and across the globe. So then that reveals, Warren Buffett used to say, you know, when in, when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. And when interest rates go up, that's when you find out who's been swimming naked. Um, because what we've had, to use another analogy, is basically we've had the central bank bartender for years serving free drinks. Mm. And the guy on the other side of the bar has got absolutely blind drunk. Um, and and now um, uh, the the bartender's seen the problem. We stopped the free drinks and um, the, the chap's in a really bad way. So the bartender's only got one solution. He says, more free drinks. Um, and so there's a risk that they could serve more free drinks for a little bit longer. But all that does is eventually serve up more inflation. So one's got to be careful here because if one saves too much and inflation erodes all your savings it's a difficult one so we have to be very wise so i think people should be very very prayerful about their money and their savings at this time knowing what to do um but if we are entering the world i think we're entering then assets such as gold um because and this is not an investment advice um, but i'm just giving you sound economic logic here that an asset such as gold uh, becomes um, very attractive mm. in those settings. Something which has got a hard limit, something which doesn't expose you to inflationary risk. Mm. Because the, what the Federal Reserve is doing at the present time is exposing the American economy to grave inflationary risk. In the meantime, how do you get out of this? The way you get out of it is you allow prices to tell the truth. So all those excess prices that have built up all those equity prices, which are way above normal values, all those house prices, which are way above normal values. In the UK, the long-term ratio of house prices to incomes 20 years ago was four. It's now eight. In Greater London, it's 12. Uh, now, we are not, you know, three, go from four to eight. We're not, as we've seen, productivity has been flat over this period, and yet house prices as a ratio of house prices to incomes, you know, has gone from four to eight. That 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 shows you the imbalances in the economy which need to be rectified. Yeah. Um, now, if you do it, the economy bounces back. So be careful, save, be prayerful about this, and just pray, pray, and then really encourage everybody in your church. Get them starting to pray and and say, Lord, guide me. What should my economic views be? Um, because 
honest, I've made that prayer. He turned my economic views around. He can turn yours around as well. Thanks, Graham. Graham, really appreciate your your insights here, uh, your predictions, your godly counsel, and the uh, the exhortation to uh, to really just you know in a way this this isn't complicated, and we we've just gone through an extended series on the Ten Commandments, and it's uh, it was just reflecting as you were talking how 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 relevant and applicable and uh, straightforward uh, these principles are that. Uh, you shall not steal. You shall not covet. And uh, grateful that uh, that you can take these uh, these big and uh, daunting concepts and uh, and activities and distill them for us. Uh, Joe and Graham, uh, thanks a lot for being here. Again, watch this space. Graham Leach's book will be forthcoming in uh, in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Joe Boot, Graham Leach, Graham Leach's dog. I'm Ryan Aris. We remind you that (laughs) from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be the glory. No no trouble at all. We're uh, glad to have you both here. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. He was agreeing. He was agreeing. I want to Absolutely. No, just uh, challenging and uh, pushing back. Grateful for it. God bless you, Graham. Bless you.